We turn for our scripture reading this morning to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. These are the words of Paul to Titus, a pastor in the island of Crete. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. On the basis of this passage and many other passages of Scripture is the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 32. You can find that in the back of the Psalter on page 19. Lord's Day 32 asks us, Since then we are delivered from our misery merely of grace through Christ without any merit of ours, why must we still do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed and delivered us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image, that so we may testify by the whole of our conduct our gratitude to God for his blessings, and that he may be praised by us. Also that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith, by the fruits thereof, and that by our godly conversation others may be gained to Christ. Cannot they then be saved, who continuing in their wicked and ungrateful lives are not converted to God? By no means. For the Holy Scripture declares that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, covetous man, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or any such like shall inherit the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we come to Lord's Day 32 this morning, I remind you that the Heidelberg Catechism is made up of three main parts. The first part of the Catechism has taught me about the greatness of my sins and miseries, the fact that I am by nature totally depraved, 
I'm not able to do anything good. I'm only able to do evil. And that I deserve to perish forever in hell because of the wickedness of my nature and the greatness of my sins. The second part of the Heidelberg Catechism has taught me how I may be delivered from my sins and miseries through Christ Jesus. The second part holds up Christ Jesus to us and his sacrifice and death on the cross as the satisfaction, the atonement for my sins that has covered my sins so that I can be right with God, I can be righteous before God, I can be justified by faith in Christ, and that I am saved by faith and by faith alone in Christ alone. Now we come to the third part of the Catechism, which teaches me how I may show my gratitude to God for such a great salvation from such great sins and miseries. And this third part of the Catechism is going to teach us concerning good works, obedience to the law of God, and the whole life of Christian prayer. The Apostle Paul exhorted Titus long ago, according to chapter 2, verse 1 that we read, to speak the things which become sound doctrine. He wants Titus to teach in the churches only the things that fit and harmonize with sound, healthy, profitable doctrine. But when the apostle tells him to speak sound doctrine, he doesn't only refer to the doctrines of sin and grace and salvation through the death of Christ on the cross and the doctrine of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ on the clouds of heaven, things which he mentions in the chapter. But when he tells Titus to speak the things that become sound doctrine, he also means, as is evident from the whole chapter we read, that Titus must teach the things of the Christian life. That, too, is included in sound doctrine, sound doctrine about the Christian life, which includes the doctrine of gratitude and the exhortation to live a life of good works. He will go on to say to Titus in chapter 3, verse 8, after mentioning the sound doctrines of justification by grace through faith, chapter 3, verse 8, he goes on and says, This is a faithful saying, and these sayings I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. Paul writes the very same things to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, particularly regarding the rich, that they not seek to be rich, but that they seek to be rich in good works, that they seek to abound and increase more and more in good works in their lives. The Catechism follows the same model of the Apostle in his epistles, teaching us in the first and second parts the sound doctrines of sin, grace, and salvation through Christ. And now in the third part, the sound doctrine concerning the life of gratitude. So let's consider this morning why Christians must still do good works. First of all, because of Christ's renewing work in us. Secondly, that we may show gratitude to God. And thirdly, fruits that assure us and gain others to Christ. Beloved, the question that comes to us this morning in the Catechism is, since we have been delivered from our sins and miseries, merely of grace, through Christ, without any merit of ours, without any works of our own, then why must we still do good works? Why must we still do good works as Christians. And the manifold answer of the Catechism begins with these words, because Christ, having redeemed and delivered us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image. Now, at first glance, that answer doesn't seem to answer the question, why must we still do good works? But it seems to answer the question, 
Why do we do good works? Why will we do good works? Because Christ renews us, he works in us, so that we do good works. That's why we do good works. But let's see this morning that in a certain sense, this also answers the question, why must we do good works? Why must we do good works? Because Christ, who has redeemed us by his blood on the cross, also renews us by his spirit. That's why we must do good works. Christ loved us so much that he gave himself for us on the cross. The apostle mentions in verse 14, he gave himself for us first that he might redeem us from all iniquity. That's what we ordinarily think of when we think of the death of Christ on the cross. He died to redeem us from our iniquity, to justify us, to forgive us, to wash away all our sins and our guilt. But then the apostle adds, he gave himself for us also that he might purify unto himself a peculiar people, a special people who are zealous of good works. He gave himself on the cross in order to make us zealous of good works, to make us a people who desire, who long to do good works and to abound in good works. And in fact, he gave himself on the cross so that he would renew our hearts and souls in such a way that we would feel an inner compulsion to do good works, an inner necessity, an inner must. By nature, of course, we are utterly incapable of doing good works. By nature, we don't want to do good works. By nature, we cannot do good works. By nature, we will not do good works. And we can even say that by nature, we must not do good works. The idea of that is not that the fallen sinners no longer are required by God to do good works. That's not the idea. God still requires sinners to do good works. Even though they can't do good works, they don't want to do good works, they will not do good works, God still says, do good works, obey my law. But that's not the idea. When I say that the fallen sinner must not do good works, I mean that within his own soul, he hears a voice speaking to him, and it's the voice of his own sinful, wicked, corrupt flesh. And that voice says to him, you must not do good works. You must not do the works that God thinks are good. You must do the works that you think are good. That's what you must do. That's what our flesh says to us. You must do what you think is good, what you think is right, what you think is pleasing. We must not do good works by nature. That's what I mean by that. Because the old man of sin that is in us is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. The old man is deceitful. And in his deceitfulness, he says to us, you must not do the works that God thinks are good. You must do the works that you think are good. Whatever you think is good. That's the deceitfulness of our flesh. But as Christians, we must do good works. Why? Because Christ gave himself on the cross, not only to redeem us from our iniquities and give us a right to eternal life, but he gave himself on the cross to break the stranglehold of sin in our lives, to silence that wicked, deceitful voice of our flesh that says we must not do good works, and instead to renew in our hearts a new voice, a new law, you might say, a new principle that says to us, you must do good works. That's the sanctified conscience of the child of God. He renews us by first regenerating us. And when Christ regenerates us by his spirit, he places in our hearts that new law. Remember, in Jeremiah 31, he prophesies the day of the new covenant. And he says that God will establish a new covenant with Israel, not like the old covenant. 
In the Old Covenant, he gave these commandments written out on tables of stone. They were outside of the man. They were objective. And those commandments said, you must do this and not that. But Jeremiah says, in the New Covenant, God will take his law and he will write it on your heart. And in Hebrews 8, the apostle says that Christ is the mediator of this new covenant, and Christ, through his Spirit then, writes the law of God on the hearts of his people in regeneration. That is to say, he puts into our hearts new qualities, new voices, which say to us, you must do good. You must do what God wants you to do. And we hear that voice in us, don't we? Don't you hear that voice within your soul? The voice that says, don't do that. You know that's wrong. Don't do that. Do this. Do what God wants you to do. Do what is right. Do what is pleasing to God. I must do good works. That's what my new man says to me now. That's the new law of God written on my heart. Christ did that. Christ is the explanation for that must. I must do good works because of Christ, not because of anything that I have done. Not because I chose to open up my heart to let Jesus in to write that new law in my heart. I couldn't do that. Christ opened up my heart. Christ came into my heart by his Holy Spirit. And Christ wrote that new law on my heart of the new covenant. So that now I have a zeal to do good works. Every child of God does. Every believer who is a true believer is zealous of good works. Not because of anything he's done, because of what Christ is doing in his heart and life. So if we turn to the chapter that we read, Titus 2, he gives directions to the aged men, to the aged women, to the young women and to the young men, to pastors and to servants. And we can say in all of these categories of age groups that we must do these things. That is, you aged men, you feel in your heart the inner conviction and necessity to do these things. You say to yourself, your your new man says to you, I must be sober, I must be grave, I must be temperate, I must be sound in faith and charity and patience. And you older women of the congregation, there's a voice in you, if you are a Christian, that says to you, I must be in behavior as becometh holiness. I must not be a false accuser. I must not be given to much wine. I must be a teacher of good things. I must teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. And you young women, if you are Christians, if you are regenerated, then you have that voice in you as well, and you hear that voice saying to you, I must love my husband. I must love my children. I must be discreet, chaste. I must be a keeper at home of my family. I must be obedient to my husband in all lawful things, so that the word of God is not blasphemed. And you young men, you also, if you are regenerated, hear the voice of the new law in your heart saying, I must be sober-minded about the way I spend my time, about eating and drinking, about money, about the words that I speak, about all of my life. I must be a sober-minded man because I belong to Christ. I, as a pastor, have that voice in my heart saying to me, I must be a pattern of good works, verse 7. I must show uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. And you who are servants, employees, hear that voice of the new law in your heart saying, I must be obedient to my master, to my employee. I must strive to please him in all good things. I must not answer back to him, talk back to him, disrespect him, but I must show good fidelity to him and adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all good things. That's the must, first of all. It's an inner must to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. 
Now, the Catechism asks us in the second question, Cannot they then be saved who, continuing in their wicked and ungrateful lives, are not converted to God? And the answer is, by no means. For the Holy Scripture declares that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, covetous man, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or any such like, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Does the Holy Scripture really say that? It does in at least three places. 1 Corinthians 6. The apostle says in verses 9 and 10, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate homosexuals, abusers of themselves with mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. People who live like that will not be saved. Again, we read in Galatians chapter 5, verse 21, after listing all of the works of the flesh, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, and so forth, he says, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, in Ephesians 5, verse 5, he says about those who do these things, This ye know, that no whoremonger or unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. We are not to be deceived. Those who continue in such sins will not find themselves in heaven after they die. Notice the Catechism does not say that anyone who has committed any of these sins will perish because we have all committed all of these sins. The Catechism says that no one who continues in these sins, and the idea is he lives his life in these wicked sins impenitently, They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why not? Why cannot they be saved? The reason is not that we must do good works in order to merit salvation. So that if you do the evil works instead of the good works, you're going to not merit the kingdom of heaven. That's not the reason. The reason is rather that a life of good works is the inevitable fruit of our salvation. It's the inevitable fruit. As the Catechism puts it elsewhere, it is impossible for those who are engrafted into Christ that they should not give forth fruits of thankfulness. That's impossible. There's an inevitable Christian life that flows out of Christian faith. There's an inevitability of good works that flow out of salvation. If you are saved, you will be striving to live a good life. The reason they cannot be saved is not that God cannot save them either. What? God cannot save whoremongers and idolaters and fornicators and drunkards? Of course he can. He saves them all the time. We think of hundreds and thousands of examples of drunkards and idolaters and adulterers whom God has saved. In fact, every person that God has saved is one of those. But these people cannot be saved because God will not save a man or a woman without sanctifying them as well. He won't do that. That's why they cannot be saved. If God has made a decision that he will not save someone who walks impenitently in sin, then they cannot be saved. There is no salvation if God will not save you. If God refuses to save you, you can't be saved. And God refuses to save those who live wicked and ungrateful lives impenitently until the day they die. 
God wills to save in the way of repentance and conversion and a life of good works. He delivers us out of the way of sin. He breaks the chains of sin, and he works in us to abound in good works. Why must Christians still do good works? First of all, because Christ renews us. He redeems us, and he renews us. But why does God still command us to do good works? Why does God still require us to do good works if our good works do not merit salvation? We must beware of a couple of ditches on either side of the truth here. On the one side is the ditch of legalism. And you slide into that ditch whenever you think, believe, teach, preach that we must do good works because somehow those good works merit our salvation. Somehow they contribute to receiving that salvation. Somehow they contribute to us obtaining the blessings of salvation now and forever. You're starting to slip into the ditch of legalism. Whenever you say that that's why we must do good works, the catechism is made clear. We don't do good works and we must not do good works to merit. What is merit? Merit means that you, you do the work, you put in the time in order to get the check, the salary, the reward. You're always doing it to get paid for it, to get the reward for it. That's what's motivating you and driving you to do it. That's a ditch. That was the Roman Catholicism of the Middle Ages that the Reformation, through the Reformation, God liberated the church from. There's another ditch. That's the ditch of antinomianism. That's the ditch that says, yes, yes, you must not do good works to merit. In fact, you don't have to do good works at all. That's antinomianism, which means literally against the law. And that's an equally dangerous ditch. That ditch, you're sliding into it when you start to think that you don't have to do good works and you don't want the preacher ever to tell you that you must do good works. And you don't ever want to be told that you need to increase in good works. And that's not enough what you're doing presently. You need to abound. You need to increase. You need to grow in good works. Whenever we don't want to hear that, we're sliding into the ditch of antinomianism. Don't tell me that. If that's your response, don't tell me that I must do good works. And that's an antinomian spirit in your heart. Some fall so far into the ditch of antinomianism that they codify it as their theology. They wrest certain scriptures out of context of the rest of the Bible, and they trumpet them from the mountaintops. Romans 6, verse 14, Ye are not under the law, but under grace, they say. See? You're not under the law. Romans, uh, Galatians 3, verse 25, After that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. You're not under the schoolmaster. Galatians 5, verse 1, Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Don't tell me I must do good works. That's the yoke of bondage, they say. And if they codify it in their theology soon, it becomes rampant in their lives as well. And they start to say things like Romans 3, verse 8, Let us do evil that good may come. In Romans 6, verse 1, let us continue in sin that grace may abound. And then you have a full-orbed and full-fledged antinomianism. A grievous, grievous, hateful error. Revelation 2 and 3 is full of Christ speaking to the churches, warning them against the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and the doctrine of Balaam. The doctrine of those people who were saying, you're saved, you're redeemed, you're justified, you're good with God. So a little sin isn't going to hurt you. In fact, you should engage in a lot of sin. Because the more you sin, the more grace there will be. 
And the deeper your sin, the worse your sin, the more abominable your sin, the more wonderful will be the grace of God that delivers you from it. So sin, sin, that's what they were saying, so that there will be more grace. We must do good works, beloved. We must. Titus 3, verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and I will that thou affirm these things constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. We must do good works. The question is, why? And I say those things, beloved, very strongly, not merely to expose false doctrine in other churches, but in our own hearts and in our own souls. Because we can just as easily slip to the right or to the left into those ditches. And we do. Because we like our sins. We don't want to give them up. And the good works that we're told in the scriptures that we're called to do, we don't want to put much effort into those. We like to think that we're okay and good enough the way we are. We like to think that. We don't want to endeavor to push ourselves, to strive, to press for the mark. We're lazy. Not just you, me. We, we, we're lazy. That's why we need to be spurred and stirred and and we need the fallow ground of our souls to be broken up. We need to be reminded that we must do good works. Why? To testify of our gratitude to God. That's the teaching of the Catechism. That's the teaching of Scripture. To testify of our gratitude to God. Not to get something from God, but to show our thankfulness to God for all that he has done for us. All that he promises to do for us. All that he declares to us from Sunday to Sunday to Sunday in the gospel. What is gratitude? Gratitude is not repayment. Repayment is a concept from the business world. It's a concept that we're very familiar with. It's part of our day-to-day life. You go to the store, you give them money, and they give you something. You go to the bank, you pull out a loan, and then you have to repay the loan. There's a, an equity, there's an equality that has to take place. I do something for you, then you feel that you have to do something for me. You have to pay me back. You feel indebted to me. I feel indebted to you. That's business, that's commerce, that's finance. And there is, that concept is there in the gospel. We are in debt to God. But the Christian life is not repaying that debt. It's already been paid. It's already been paid back in full. Jesus paid the debt for us. He paid it in full. He gave to God the full obedience that we needed to give, the full suffering that we couldn't give, the satisfaction on the cross, the suffering of the depth of hell, the wrath of God against our sins. He paid it. He paid it all. What is gratitude then? the attitude of my heart and soul that desires to know and acknowledge all that God has done for me and to respond in a life that pleases him, in a life of obedience, a life of worship, a life of prayer, a life of love, a life of good works. It's gratitude. Are we grateful? How grateful are we? When we do something for our children as parents, raise them up from babyhood all the way to adulthood, we spoon-feed them when they're little, we provide meals when they're older, we, we take care of all of their needs. What do we want from our children in response? A check? No, we want gratitude, just gratitude. 
Gratitude that expresses itself in love. Gratitude is always love for someone who first loved you. It's a response of love, a response of seeking to do good to them, to to please them, to help them. That's all God wants from us, gratitude. And that gratitude doesn't earn us anything. It's simply the response of love. Older brothers, aged men. The apostle tells us pastors to exhort you to be sober, grave, temperate. That means to be self-disciplined, self-controlled in the words you speak. What you talk about, how you talk about it, when you talk about it. To regulate your emotions. To control how much you eat, how much you drink, how much alcohol you drink, when you drink it how often you drink it, to be sober, to be temperate in all things. Why? Why must you be that? Why must you strive after that? He says you should be sound in faith, in works of love, and in patience. Faith, love, patience. Older men, faith, love, patience. Why? Love for my wife even after all these years of marriage, still growing in my love for her. Love for my children, love for my grandchildren, love for my neighbors. Patience with people. Patience. Why? Because Christ gave himself for you. To redeem you from intemperance, from gluttony, from drunkenness, from foolish jesting, from hatred to purify you to himself as men who are zealous of good works. Zealous. That's why. He's redeemed you and purified you to make you zealous, to make you want to live a life of gratitude. Aged women, I'm supposed to exhort you to be holy in your behavior. To be holy in what you watch on television. To be holy in the way you talk about others, not false accusers. To be holy in how much wine you drink. To be holy in all aspects of your life. Why? Because Christ loves you too. And he loved you so much that he gave himself for you on the cross. For you, older women. To blot out your sins, and to purify you, to make you zealous, to renew you and change you so that you desire to do good works. Why? Not because as you get closer to the end of your life, you realize, oh, I haven't done enough. I need to do more. I need to do more so that I can make sure I get into heaven. None of that. No. Just to show your gratitude to God. Young women, I'm supposed to exhort the old women to teach you. And notice that what's implied there is the relationships also in the congregation. There are to be interweaving and interlocking relationships between the old and the young. And obviously that doesn't just mean the relationships within our own marriage and family. We have those pretty well established. But also from family to family within the congregation. And there's an encouragement to make sure that those relationships exist. Invite each other over to each other's houses. Make sure you're striving to spend time with each other. I challenge you to do that. To get busy with that this week, thinking about that. How I can establish better relationships between some of the older people that I don't know so well, some of the younger people that I don't know so well. Because I'm supposed to exhort the older women that they would teach the younger women. So I'm supposed to exhort you older folks to reach out to the younger folks and teach them. To teach the young women to love their husbands and children. To be modest. To be chaste in their words, in their clothing. To serve their families as keepers in the home. And younger women, why must you behave that way? 
because Christ loves you, because Christ gave himself for you, and God wants you to live a thankful life. And young men, you are to be sober-minded. You are not to become old men who throughout the whole of their life never lived soberly so that now they are the most intemperate people. You are to start seeking sobriety as young men, regulating your emotions, regulating your intake of food and drink, regulating your use of your time and your money properly in moderation. In what you watch on your phone, what you watch on your tablet, what you watch on your television, making sure you're spending the proper amount of time with your wife and your children and not just on your screen all the time or with your buddies all the time. Sober-minded. Balance in all of my duties of life. Why? Because young men, Christ loves you too. And he gave himself for you too. And he wants you to live a life of thankfulness. Now, the Catechism adds that Christ also renews us to live a life of good works for two more reasons. First of all, that we may be assured in ourselves of our faith. That we may be assured in ourselves of our faith. Now, please take note that the Catechism does not say that we must do good works so that we may be assured in ourselves of our justification. We may be assured of our justification. We may be assured that we are righteous before God even though we are sinners. We may be assured of that, but only by faith. We may only be assured Sure, in our hearts, that we are righteous before God when we renounce all of our works and we cling to Christ and his works and his righteousness by faith. When we cling to Christ by faith, when we focus on Christ by faith, then we can be sure of our justification. Just ask Mr. Martin Luther. Because some 500 years ago, he was trying so hard to have the assurance of his justification by doing all the right things, all the things he thought were the right things. If I just do more, if I just do this, if I just fast more, if I just pray more, if I just read the Bible more, if I just do more, then maybe I can attain peace in my soul that I'm righteous before God. And he couldn't. He couldn't obtain assurance of his justification by works. But then when he opened the book of Romans and Galatians and he learned what we're going to learn in the second service, that the just shall live by faith, he says it was like paradise opened up before me. He found peace. Assurance of our justification is found Not by works, but by faith. Faith in Christ. Clinging to Christ. But now, that faith itself can sometimes come under assault. And the Catechism says that Christ renews us so that we live a life of good works, that we may be assured of our faith. Assured of our faith. Assured that we have true faith. And again, the idea is not there that we think to ourselves, okay, I'm going to do as many good works as I possibly can so that I can have assurance of my faith. I'm motivated to get busy with good works because I want to get that assurance of my faith. I want to make sure that my faith is true. But it's more like this. When I'm living the Christian life, the life of gratitude, service to the Lord, striving to love my God, striving to love my wife and children and my neighbor as myself. And there are times as I'm going through life when 
I find myself in the throes of doubt and temptation. I find myself in the darkness of the night, struggling, wrestling, tossing and turning on my bed. Am I a true believer? I know that people are only justified by faith. I know that. But do I have faith? And then the Catechism teaches us that Christ renews us to live a life of good works that we may be assured of our faith by the fruits thereof. Because faith, if it is true, if it is real, if it is alive, always produces good works. Always. If it doesn't, it's not true faith. Faith without works is dead. So faith that produces good works of love, if you find in your heart that you have a desire, a, 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 a resolution, a commitment to live a godly life, that's a fruit of faith. If you didn't have that, you wouldn't be a true believer. And you would know it too. Probably if you're already concerned whether or not you have faith, probably you do have faith. Because those who don't, don't think much about that. So that in the first place. We find assurance of the genuineness of our faith when we notice when we notice the good works that God has worked in our lives, that God has led us to do, we notice them. Those are the fruits. And we are assured. In the second place, Christ renews us to a life of good works so that through those good works, others may be gained to Christ. This is no small thing. That others may be gained to Christ. So often we are only thinking about ourselves and our salvation. But we need to also think outside of ourselves. To all these people around us who are lost in the darkness of their sin and unbelief. And the catechism and the scriptures backing it up. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is heaven in heaven. Matthew 5, 1 Peter 3, that by the godly conversation of the women, others may be one for Christ, and so on, is teaching us that God will gain others to Christ through our good works. Not that we will win people to Christ by our good works, but that God will through our good works. Now, old men, that means that when you strive to live in the world, but not of the world, in the midst of the world, so that others see your life, and you are living a sober life. And they see that. Sober. He's sober. He's temperate. He's patient. He's loving. He's kind. God may use that to draw them to Christ. And older women... When you are living in the midst of the world and people see you and they see that you are kind, you are faithful, you are honest, you are sober. God may use that to draw them to Christ. And younger women, when you are living in the midst of the world and people see you, that you love your husbands. You're not like so many of the women of the world constantly criticizing and railing and, and tearing down your husband's name. But you speak well of your husband. It's obvious that you love your husband and you love your children. Not constantly complaining about these little children, but you speak of them as if you love them and you long for their salvation. And young men, when you live soberly, managing and regulating eating and drinking and emotions and words and choices with time and money and it's clear that you are with single-minded devotion focused on God and his kingdom. Unlike the rat race in the world where everybody is scurrying about trying to get as much pleasure and treasure out of this life as they possibly can, people are going to notice this young man. He goes to work 
because he has a family to support that he loves and he has a church that he's involved in and maybe Christian school that he's supporting. And God may use that to draw them to Christ. We are to let our light shine before men. So, beloved, let us be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. And let us live godly and soberly and righteously in this present world in gratitude to God as we continue to look for that glorious and blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our great God and Savior, we bow our heads to thee. We thank thee, Lord, for exhorting us this morning, for setting before us the doctrine of good works. We thank thee, Lord, because we need that. We need to be stirred up. We need to be roused from our sleepiness. And Father, we thank thee for the good works that thou hast already led us to cultivate in our lives. We thank thee because we confess it's not of us that we old men strive to live godly and we old women, that we young women and young men also strive to live faithfully and godly in our marriages and families and in our churches and in our neighborhood. We give thee all the glory for that. And we pray now, Father, that thou would use this message to stir us up further, that we would strive to stretch out beyond what is comfortable and familiar, that we would strive to do good as much as we can to all those in our lives, and that we might do it for the honor and glory of thy name, out of gratitude for thy great salvation.